0: Welcome to this Outbeat Extra edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, October is LGBTQ History Month. It's an annual commemoration started by a group of educational organizations back in 1994, both to honor the first LGBT march on Washington and National Coming Out Day, which falls every year on October 11th. We're celebrating LGBTQ History Month tonight with author and LGBTQ historian Eric Marcus. He's the creator of the Making Gay History podcast, and he's here with me tonight to talk about LGBTQ history in the 1970s. It was a huge decade, so stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, October 30th, 2022. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of October 30th, 2022. An Arizona Republican candidate who said he wanted, quote, our children protected from the progressive left, end quote, was arrested for masturbating near a public preschool. Randy Kaufman suspended his campaign for the Maricopa County Community College Governing Board earlier last week following media reports of his arrest for public sexual indecency. According to multiple news outlets, Kaufman was arrested on October 4th when a Maricopa County Community College police officer spotted him apparently masturbating in his truck within view of a preschool where children are playing outside. A probable cause affidavit shows part of the conversation between the officer and Kaufman, where Kaufman admitted to the officer that he was looking at interracial pornography on his phone. The affidavit goes on to say that Kaufman said that he was quote really stressed out and quote, had a lot of things going on and quote. he apologized to the officer. Kaufman is a Trump supporter who reportedly promoted the former president's lie that the 2020 election was stolen. He made sure to tell the arresting officer that he knows Maricopa County College Police Officers Association president Jim Hill. The union had previously endorsed Kaufman's candidacy. Kaufman's made numerous other extreme statements on social media, including, quote, "...nothing is more important than standing against the godless, progressive, left-wing, socialist, Marxist, communist, democratic party to destroy America," end quote. This was a post from July 9th. And he also railed against, quote, "...baby-killing leftists," end quote. Several of his posts opposed vaccine and mask mandates as well. KPNX News reports that Kaufman could face felony charges because of his proximity to the child care center. And on the heels of the new don't-say-gay law now in effect in Florida, the Florida Board of Education has approved new rules that will make life harder for LGBTQ people and allies. One of the rules requires schools to post on their websites and notify parents by mail if they allow students to use bathrooms and locker rooms in accordance with their gender identity rather than their sex assigned at birth. In a statement, Equality Florida, Senior Political Director Joe Saunders called the policy, quote, an attempt to bully and intimidate school districts that are providing these accommodations, end quote. The second new rule instituted by the Board of Education is in relation to the state's Don't Say Gay Law, which prevents teachers from mentioning LGBTQ people in elementary schools. The rule takes the law a step further by directly punishing teachers who violate it. It says any K-3 teacher who is found to have taught their students about LGBTQ issues can have their licenses suspended or revoked. And as this year's LGBTQ History Month comes to a close tomorrow, the site of the infamous Compton Cafeteria Riots in San Francisco's Tenderloin District is set to be permanently memorialized on the National Register of Historic Places. Fifty-six years ago, an angry drag queen in Compton's Cafeteria This was a 24 hour diner in San Francisco. Threw a cup of hot water in the face of a police officer who tried to arrest her without a warrant. A riot ensued between the police and the trans women and drag queens who frequented the diner. The following night, the battle continued. And in the end, the fighting cost the diner owner two plate glass windows. And whether the incident's participants realized it or not, history was being made. Unfortunately, the exact date of the incident remains a mystery. Nonetheless, the site of the historic event is now on its way to being permanently memorialized on the National Register of Historic Places. Last Friday, the seven members of the California State Historical Resources Commission met virtually from all over the state. They voted 6-0 to nominate the site of the 1966 Compton Cafeteria's riots for addition to the Federal Registry. While fitting for the register, it isn't the first time that the site has been recognized as a landmark. A commemorative sidewalk plaque denoting the Compton Cafeteria Riots was installed by the city at Turk and Taylor Street outside the former diner back in 2006. In 2016, the city christened the 100 block of Taylor Street as Gene Compton's Cafeteria Way to honor the 50th anniversary of the historic riot. And finally, Face to Face here in Santa Rosa is hosting an open house. The care team services at Face to Face invites all clients, their friends, and family to attend a Day of the Dead event, to remember and honor those who have passed. Feel free to bring a photo of your loved one or a flower to place on the altar. Snacks and drinks will be provided this Tuesday, November 1st, from 4 to 6 p.m. at 873 2nd Street in Santa Rosa. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moraglia. Eric Marcus is a prolific author and LGBTQ historian. I first came across him after I came out and found his book titled, Is It a Choice? 300 of the Most Frequently Asked Questions About Gays and Lesbians. I had given a copy of the book to my family so they could better understand what being gay was all about. More importantly, though, Eric wrote a series of gay history books and based his research on hundreds of in-person interviews he got to conduct and record with icons and heroes from our community. The collection is now being featured in Eric's Making Gay History podcast series, which is coming up on its 11th season. Eric, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, Greg. It's really nice to be with you again.
0: So exciting to talk about all the great work you're doing. And of course, we featured that series uh, over the course of a year with clips from uh, the Making Gay History podcast series, super popular with our listeners and you've got a couple of new seasons coming up, uh, one you're working on now, and then another about one of my favorite decades, the 1970s, that's going to be premiering in early 2023. But for our listeners who may not have heard our series or know about makinggayhistory.com, talk about what it is and where it came from.
1: So way back in 1988, I was commissioned to write a book about what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Civil Rights Movement. An editor, at Harper and Rowe now HarperCollins, called me and asked me to do this. And I said, I'm not the person for you. I'm not an academic. I know nothing about this history. And he said, well, I want somebody who's fresh to the subject. I want a book like Studs Terkel's Working, which I had read. Um, And it was just at a moment in my uh, career at CBS News where I thought I was done um, for a variety of reasons, one of which was they said they would never put an openly gay person on camera, which Mm -hmm. is what I'd wanted to do. So I took on the project. I recorded over the course of two uh, editions of the book, more than 100 interviews. I used broadcast quality uh, equipment, and I thank my 30-year-old self for thinking to do that. I figured someday someone, some scholar, would would, uh, make use of my archive. I never thought that I would wind up making use of my archive. Mm -hmm. Um, And back in 2015, when I was trying to figure out what to do next with my life, um, I revisited my archive, which had been digitized by the New York Public Library in New York, where I had donated my whole collection. And long story short, we launched the Making Gay History podcast in uh, October of 2016. I can't believe it's been six years. We've produced close to 100 episodes, which have been downloaded more than 5 million times in 200 countries and territories around the world. Holy cow. Which I find shocking because we were told, you know, if you get a 500 or a thousand listeners for each episode, you're really lucky. Um, But... There's been great interest in the podcast, Um, and I remember the first time I saw an episode was downloaded in Libya, um, and then another in Saudi Arabia, and I thought, well, there are LGBTQ people world over, and there's some very brave people who risk downloading, making a history in places like that. So generally, in each episode, we feature an individual from my archive or from elsewhere. We've partnered with the Studs Terkel Radio Archive and pulled from his archive, which is extraordinary. It is. And then we've also done some seasons uh, that are topical. We did a season on the AIDS crisis um, called Coming of Age During the AIDS Crisis. A lot of it was my own story. My nephew tells me that he cringed through a lot of that because it was was some of my early wild days that he knew nothing about. Um, And we also did a season specifically on the Stonewall Uprising, which is something people are very interested in. Um, And this 1970 season we have coming up in early... 2023 is also thematic and it's, we're calling it coming of age during the 1970s because it's when I came into an awareness of my own sexuality. Um, at, and then my coming out, which was incredibly messy. And that's against the gra- the backdrop of the movement in the 1970s, which was, um, which was really messy, but it, it's, you know, we, we were just working on, on this yesterday. And the first episode is something about when the dam breaks, because Following Stonewall, it was an extraordinary explosion yeah. of organizing, and uh, thousands and thousands of people were drawn into the movement. But, you know, 1970, I was duh, I was 12 years old. So I wasn't quite aware of what was going on yet, but I was coming into an awareness of it.
0: Yeah, I, I was just a couple of years behind you in that time. And, you know, for me, I would describe the 70s very much the same way. It was when I be, really became aware of myself and also became aware of how unacceptable I was to everybody yeah. around me. I mean, there was yeah. nothing. There was no gay-straight alliance. There was nothing. <laughs> there was, you
1: know? no. I mean, there was there were things, but they were, you know, the movement, well, before Stonewall, the movement was really small. There were maybe tw- uh, 40 to 60 organizations nationwide and several hundred right. people who were active members of a movement. But in terms of the public realm, uh, television, I don't know. I I will ask you in a second what your first memory of is of seeing anyone on television who was gay. But I remember Medical Center starring Chad Everett. Wasn't Mm -hmm. my type, but my sister was crazy for Chad Everett. And there was an episode, I was probably 14 or 15. And there was an episode in which there was a doctor who was identified as a homosexual. And he said he'd see a psychiatrist and that he was one of those homosexuals where you couldn't tell. And it was seen as such – it was portrayed as such a horrible thing. Um, and I remember it so vivid – I remember nothing. I have a terrible memory. But that I remember and, and looking at my sister as she's watching, thinking, oh, my God, does she have any idea that I'm one of them?
0: Mm, that must have been terrifying. Especially, Do you remember? Well, especially because the character was portrayed so negatively. I don't have any, oh. I don't have any memory of characters that are being gay. I, when I think about, well, who did I – watch on TV that I remember uh, Michael Landon as Little Joe on uh, you remember that series
1: <laughs> of course
0: yeah of course now of course yeah. he wasn't portrayed as gay he wasn't gay but no that's the TV character that I definitely remember going wow
1: what about Don on Lost in Space
0: uh, or Billy Billy Moomy yeah it, it doesn't I don't think nope. it didn't resonate. Didn't resonate. Did it? No, when yeah. I think back now, yeah, it's been a few years. I'm sure there were people on TV that I watched, but that one is, if you asked me who stood out to you as a character you were attracted to on TV back then, that was it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's so hard to place oneself back in those times mm-hmm. for people our age, because it's so dramatically different from now. So to yeah. try to convey to younger people, and I deal with younger people a lot because of my work, they are stunned by how isolated we were, how little we knew, um, and in contrast to how much they know, even if it's still unacceptable in many quarters in this country um, and around the world, there's such, there's so much more access to information. Um, And if there had been as much access to information then as there is now, I would have been far less confused. And I might have felt a lot better about myself because there are people who are out in the world who are who are leading very productive lives. But when I was growing up in the seventies, you know, homosexuals were, were basically hidden. And if they were out there in the world in any kind of way, it was not positive. I remember in high school, there was one kid and I went to a huge urban high school. There was one kid who was identified as gay because of, of his, of his manner. He embodied a lot of the stereotypes we associated with homosexuals then. And I saw how tortured he was by other kids. So I, there was no way, and nobody was out in my high school, um, but I made sure to check how I walked and how I moved my hands and made sure that the, I did nothing that would suggest I was a homosexual.
0: Right. And and this is, is going to sound like a super selfish comment, but those are the guys who protected me indirectly because the target was on their back, not on mine. I could hide really yeah. easily. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I don't know that I was terribly conscious about that, but I I knew the, who those guys were, and I later found out, yes, in fact, they were gay. Um, but I felt terrible for them because they couldn't go a single day without getting beat up or harassed, name yeah. called, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I I, I had I got an interesting perspective on that when I was in college in the seventies. I, I sort of dated a gay guy who was who was very visibly identifiable as gay, and he said you know, I never have to come out. Um, he said, because people just know. Mm. What I feel bad about is that I was embarrassed to be seen in public with him. Yeah. And I, I apologized to him years later, and he, is, he died years ago now. But I had my own, and it wasn't even internalized homophobia, it was my own homophobia because of the world I grew up in um, and really had to, really struggled to get, up, to get over that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. Well, you've got literally a treasure chest of conversations with people. These are icons. Uh, Many of them have passed away. Yeah. I know how I'm using them in my own teaching, but what have you heard uh, in how these incredible conversations are being used in schools and other places?
1: I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, One is, uh, I had an email, this is years ago now, when we first did the Vito Russo episode, which was in our first season. Mm -hmm. I had an email from a 15 year old, self-identified lesbian, disabled, uh, living in Russia, who said she was very inspired by Vito Russo's story, asked if she could translate the transcripts from the episodes as we do transcripts of all our episodes. If uh, she could translate the episode into Russian and post it on her blog oh, wow. so that that people in Russia who didn't speak English could follow along with Vito's story. Mm. She had hundreds of people um, uh, accessed her blog and learned about Vito Russo. Um Vito talked in his interview about the importance of legacy and that he hoped that one day, you know, a 16-year-old somewhere would find his book on a shelf. His book was The Cellular Closet about how Hollywood's negative portrayal of gay men and lesbians shaped public, negative public opinion about us. Right. I don't think he could have imagined that his voice would be, you know, travel through time years after he died um, and be heard by a a 15-year-old lesbian in Moscow. Yeah. In Russia, I should say. Um, that's just one example. But I, I spoke to a class in um, Hayes, Kansas, a rural community in Kansas, as um, a teacher who teaches the history of sexuality. And, uh, and they have used the podcast in their class, well, first in the class, but then also in their research for research papers. Um, I presented to two eighth grade classes in Brooklyn, New York last, uh, last spring unfortunately, on the very last day of school uh, before their graduation. And they, I thought they didn't get, they, they seemed very, um, um, very flat. There was no reaction mm-hmm. to anything until I was done. And then there was raucous applause. You know, and I shared in my presentation, I share clips from the podcast. Um, so I have found that uh, in, whether it's students or corporate groups or community groups, that people are moved by these stories, that they engage with the audio, these stories and the voices of the people who live this history in a way that you can't engage with print. Right. It's such a different experience.
0: Oh, it definitely yeah. is. And I'm going to share another story with you that just, I just discovered uh, actually this week. And it, and it involved the season you did focused on Pride. So there were sort of three pieces to that, what led up to Stonewall, then Stonewall, and then what came after the year after Stonewall. And so I have that broken out. My students in my LGBT studies program, we were studying the Stonewall era, and so they listened to each of those. And then this week, they had to write a paper. They had research an LGBT hero, and the young woman who was assigned Sylvia Rivera listened to that podcast, heard her voice, heard her story from her, and then in her paper wrote, Sylvia Rivera is my personal hero because she helped me come out.
2: Oh, wow.
0: And so I thought, wow. oh my God, as a teacher, there's no way that I could talk about Sylvia Rivera in a way that would have inspired the student to come out. Uh, you know, I could describe how courageous she was. I could describe how she stood up to to the transphobia that even existed in our community, the gay community at the time. I could talk about being the intersectionality that, that Sylvia had. But for that student to hear her voice and hear her story and be so inspired to have courage herself to come out, I thought, wow, that's pretty yeah. magical.
1: Yeah. Yeah. it's It's the power of, of the voice, the human voice. And it's Um, when I first started listening to the tapes, again, after 30 years, I was struck by how much more information there was in hearing someone speak in comparison to seeing their words on a page. You can't reproduce emotion on the page, um, to match what you hear in the recordings, um, I, have not, I love audio, and it's even better than, than, than seeing video because you really focus when you hear someone's voice, and the way we, we generally um, consume podcasts is with earbuds, so you literally, because of how our brains are constructed, it sounds like the voice is coming from the middle of your head, so it's a very intimate experience. You feel like you're right there with Sylvia Rivera or Craig Rodwell or any number of people um, who... I had the good fortune to record when I did my work.
0: I totally agree with you. And I, I think what is amazing to me, and I just have to imagine, as you go back and listen to these again, you're reliving the time that you got to spend with these folks. And maybe, maybe at the time you didn't realize how huge they were in history, but, but now you've got to look back and go, oh my God, this, this was such a privilege to be able to sit down face to face and meet these people.
1: Yeah, I I did have a sense of how important these stories were, especially the people who I interviewed who were much older and the people who had AIDS and and didn't have long Mm -hmm. on this planet. Um, And I know that I thought they were important because I recall what I would do every time I had to travel anywhere um, by plane. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I would uh, make a copy of everything I had done up to that point, uh, put it on a CD, um, actually a floppy disk in those days. Um, and I would, FedEx, the disc or discs along with instructions to my editor on how to proceed with the project if anything happened to
0: me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You certainly did have an awareness, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So as you reflect back on all of those hundreds of interviews, uh, I imagine there's more than one, but uh, who's someone that stands out to you?
1: Well, I, I'm really deep into the people who were who were featuring this fall and one one particular stands out, well, there are any number, but Craig Rodwell, um, who had such an outsized impact on the course of the movement. And most people don't know who he is, or they know about his later life when he opened the first uh, gay bookstore in the world, the uh, Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop in Greenwich Village. Um But we don't usually know how how the people we've come to know of as activists became activists, Mm -hmm. how they became radicalized. So in the season that we're doing now, um, we are featuring part of an interview I did with Craig when he talked about being arrested at age 14. Um, He had picked up a guy. Craig knew who he was and was in in hot pursuit of other men. Um, And he was arrested with a... 30, I think a 34-year-old guy, um, and treated badly by the police. Sure. Um, and the, so Craig got himself to New York, um, couldn't get involved with the Manishing Society, which was one of the early gay rights organizations, because they wouldn't allow anyone under 21. They were terrified of, of being associated with young people. Right. Because they, you know, the popular myth was that gay people were pederace. Um So... So he couldn't get involved with Mattachine then, but he did go to uh, the earliest protest in 1964. It was the first public protest in the US as far as we know um, for gay rights. It was at the Army Induction Center in uh, on Whitehall Street in the New-, uh, New York City's financial district. And I just saw a photo, we've been collecting photos for the episode um, of Craig at that protest. He went on uh, to be a key player in the famous sip-in at Julius's bar in New York City in 1966. Mm um protesting the fact that homosexuals could not be served alcohol in New York. I know that's crazy. Yeah. But it was against the law. Um and then he w- was the lead on on founding uh the first Christopher Street Liberation Day march which became the Pride March, the annual Pride March. Uh so he's he's one of the people who I just he's he was so self assured. He so knew himself. Um uh and then next June, we're going to have a bonus episode with him uh, where he is arrested at Reese Park Beach in New York City uh, for wearing a bikini, <laughs> <laughs> it's basically a Speedo bathing suit. You could be arrested for wearing a Speedo bathing suit in the 1960s in New York City.
0: Incredible. Yeah. I, and, and the piece that you mentioned that I think maybe has disappeared here is this idea of how novel a gay bookstore was at the time. He opened the very first one in the world. Uh, why were we gay bookstores so important? Well, his store became a community center.
1: It wasn't just a bookstore. Um, it was, I mean, it was a place where people could actually go and find um, LGBTQ related books and magazines. Um, it wasn't a porn shop, uh, it was a place where people could get the few things that were published in those days that were positive about gay people. Mm. Um, and there weren't, he opened his bookstore before, uh, Stonewall. Um, and I hope I'm right on that date. Sometimes I get those things wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was 1967 to 68. Um, there weren't community centers. Um, so that store and then gay bookstores that opened across the country in subsequent years became community centers, de facto community centers. Right. Right. They were, they were important bases of operation. In the movement.
0: I think that's one of the greatest losses uh, in our community um, is the bookstore. A Different Light bookstore, you probably remember that. There were, sure. I think, three of them. Um, I did my book release parties at them, and, of course, A Different Light has disappeared. I'm yeah. grateful because in that same space in the Castro where A Different Light was, a, a local has reopened Fabulous Books, which is a local gay bookstore, and I'm hoping to do another release party there to support him. Yeah, Because it's hard. It's hard enough to be a bookstore owner, but it's hard, even harder, I think, to specialize in, in LGBT literature. Let's take a listen yeah. to a bit of that interview that you did with Craig. He is a remarkable man, and I don't think you're going to find his name in any gay history book, not that there are a lot of them, other than right. ones that you've written, but like textbooks. Uh, but he had a huge part. Take a listen.
3: All of a sudden, these two or three cops disappeared, what seemed to be out of nowhere. Uh... The first thing they asked me was how old I was, and I summoned up my deepest voice and said seventeen. But they knew better. And also, it was an area that I didn't realize at the time, but there was a lot of young teenage boy hustlers in the area. And then they asked me who the other guy was, and I said he's my uncle. Uh, and then they took us into the police station. You must have been frightened by that. I would say I was more angry. Mm-hmm. It was a mixture of the two. I mean, because I knew what was happening was an assault on on our freedom and my freedom.
0: And if you're just joining us, you're listening to an Outbeat Extra edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Tonight, we're celebrating LGBT History Month, and my guest is LGBT historian and author Eric Marcus. Well, the new season, as you mentioned, is focused on the 70s, and, and you said in 1970 you were 12?
1: I was, but I, I I was, I had a um, seminal experience in 1971 that made clear to me that, that something was different about me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll talk about this at greater length in the episode itself, but I was at a swimming pool at a hotel in Puerto Rico, struggling to swim in the shallow end. I was not, I was just, I couldn't learn how to swim and, um, Suddenly I looked up and there was this teenager, Andrew, who said, uh, let me give you a hand. I'll help you float on your back. And uh, he was very handsome. And um, he put one hand at the base of my spine and one hand between my shoulder blades and said, just lean back. And it wasn't lightning bolt. It wasn't a, um, a shock. But I've come to think of it as liquid bliss. (laughs) It was just this warm sensation that spread from his hands across my whole back. And I thought, oh, my God, what was that? Um, And it was actually years before I experienced that again. Hmm. Um, It was just uh, remarkable. So my coming of age during the 70s paralleled the 70s gay liberation phase of the movement, um, and there are different points of intersection in my life during that time, um, like first reading an excerpt from a book called Consenting Adult by Laura Z. Hobson, which was a mother coming to terms with her gay son, published in 1975, hmm. really the first book in which I recognized myself. Um, I went to a meeting of the Gay Alliance at my college in 76. Um, just Various things. I wrote my first paper on gay people in the spring of 77. The, the title of the uh, paper was Marginal Men, the Alcoholic and the Homosexual. And, I, <laughs> I got I, and that's how homosexuals were uh, in, in sociological terms. It was my sociology class. Sure. In sociological terms, that was um, uh, where homosexuals were placed on the margins of society, along with alcoholics. But I was afraid to write just about homosexuals because I didn't want my teacher to know I was gay. And um, of course she knew I was gay. So <laughs> I, I put alcoholics first, you know, marginal men, alcoholic Alex, uh, the alcoholic and the homosexual. Um, and it was a very uh, sort of optimistic paper about, about where things were going with gay rights and gay people. Um, and it, it immediately preceded um, uh, Anita Bryant and the backlash. Um, oh, but it yeah. was at Vassar College where I I I first found lots of gay people. Not that many, but there was a gay student group. Um, and really, back
0: back in that time.
1: Oh yeah, Vassar's gay student group was founded in 1970. Wow. The first one was founded in 1966 at Columbia University. Um, so after Stonewall, there was a there was a, uh, an explosion of of gay student groups at colleges and universities across the country. Um, and sense. it was at Vassar that I met. A young woman. She was seventeen. We we're the same age. She was a year ahead of me, though. Um, Irvish Shivat, who went on to become uh, a major leader within the movement. Uh, she was executive director of the National Gay Task Force at one point. Um, was a featured speaker at the 1993 march on Washington. Uh, was a f- founded the Creating Change Conference, which has trained thousands and thousands of young activists year after year. Wow. Uh, but she was much more courageous than I. Um, um, but I always thought she was, you know, out and out lesbian from the beginning and, um, uh, in college, but in listening to the interview that I did with Irv is how I called her, Irv have had, um, I had forgotten what was in the interview. I didn't use it in the book. So I, I just didn't remember it. Um, but Irv, it took Irv time also during college to figure out her identity, mm-hmm. um, but she was bold. She was a bold activist in social justice issues. She she just about invented intersectionality um, you know, three decades ago. But she was very bold. I was not. Um, I was a follower. I was not an activist even as a journalist. Um, I always, I think I in part chose journalism because I liked being on the sidelines. I wasn't comfortable with, with protests and mm-hmm, anger. Mm-hmm. But I went on my very first protest my freshman year with Irv um, occupying the admissions office of Vassar College because we objected to the characterization of men at Vassar in a brochure that was published by the admissions office. Um, but of course, had no idea at the time that, that, that Irv would do what she did and that I would wind up doing what I do.
0: And then you circled back and you had a chance to interview her for the podcast.
1: Yes, in 1989, I interviewed Irv. By then, she had quite a high profile and uh, was uh, executive director. I'm trying to remember now. She was executive director of the task force in 89. Um, I just remember she was very busy. She kept answering the phone during her interview. I got very annoyed with her. (laughs) Uh, But it was a really, listening to it again, it was a really sweet interview. And she just died a few weeks ago. Um, Yeah, um, young. You know, she'd had cancer for years, and um, um, uh, she was Kate Clinton's partner, the, uh, the comedian. Really? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, how great you were able to memorialize her story. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that one.
2: If you ask me when I came to a lesbian identity, um, I would say that I don't think I was a lesbian until I got out of college mm-hmm. and moved to Boston and lived in a gay community. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really knew, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a lesbian. In college, it was much more of like, well, I dated women, I dated men, but I didn't really have that big picture connection. It was a very specific universe. It was Vassar College. It was this little Petri dish where everybody was growing their own mold.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, I, I really became aware, as I mentioned earlier, of who I was in the mid-'70s, uh, seventh grade I have a very, actually, now a very vivid memory of walking into PE one day um, and the kid changing next to me. I I will never forget that. And that really caused me to think. I don't know that I got the same spine tingling feeling (laughs) that you described, but boy, did I know who I was. Uh, And who who was he? Well, his name is Mark Batir. I'll never forget that. Uh, And he was just this gorgeous, young guy, uh, also in seventh grade with me. Um, and you know, I, I never really talked with him about anything. We we didn't have any other contact other than we were locker neighbors. Yeah. Uh,
1: it's so, it's so profound that we, as human critters, um, we're not really masters of, of, of our feelings. Our feelings master us. And, uh, and I can tell you, I really tried not to have those feelings. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but it's profound. It's really, uh, it's really profound. And I don't, I don't think that, that if you, you know, ask me straight boys, if they had experiences like that. No, I wonder. I wonder if they have, have those, those moments of revelation when they feel a sense of attraction for the first time to a young woman. Um, I've interviewed a lot of gay people I've not interviewed a lot of straight
0: people I've talked to a lot of my students who are in my classes and they're straight and we talk about this we talk about the question of is sexual orientation a choice uh-huh. and and they do describe similar circumstances I actually have them write a paper about it's, it's called the I Knew I Was When paper uh-huh. but, but see the difference is that it was normal they could experience right. those feelings and see other people experiencing those feelings in the same way for you and I it was contrary to what the, the way things were supposed to be.
1: Yes. It's the, what's wrong with me, or I shouldn't be feeling that. Or I remember thinking, well, I will grow out of this. Right. Um, or why am I so different? I remember being at summer camp and uh, when I was 13, 14 years old, and the boys started to go on raids of the girls bunks and talking about getting to first or second base. And I thought, why would anyone? And I wasn't really feeling attraction to to guys at that age. I wasn't really feeling attraction. Other than that experience with Andrew, And that wasn't attraction. It just was this
2: feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But I couldn't understand why anyone would want to get up in the middle of the night, crawl through the woods to the girls' section of the camp, and try to get to first or second base. I thought sleep was much more important to me. Sure. So it was like looking at the world through a thick glass window and thinking, Something's, something's, something's wrong.
0: Something's wrong. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Anita Bryant, uh, and Proposition 6 here in California was you know, a voter yes. initiative. It was a backlash over some progress that had been made around the country. Uh, but Prop 6 was a proposition put together by a guy named Senator John Briggs that proposed to terminate and prohibit anybody who is gay or lesbian from being a public school teacher.
1: Yeah, there would have been almost no t- public school teachers.
0: Well, exactly. And yeah. my, my very first day, I found out about this years later, but my very first day of seventh grade uh, in, in California, that's when you started to have different class periods. So my very first class period, on my very first day in seventh grade at this new school was with a guy named Ray Lippincott, and he was a sh- social science teacher, an amazing storyteller, right? Just the perfect guy you would want to be a social science teacher and I didn't have any sense that he was gay. He, he just was a great storyteller. And then the teacher uh, on that same first day, the very last period, was a guy named Walter Mast. And Walter had fire engine red hair and this big curly mustache and these bright blue eyes. And he was as stereotypical gay as you could possibly imagine. He taught art. And I remember the eighth graders in the class just being horrible to him. And I thought, oh, my God, they are treating this guy, this is horrible. Yeah. yeah. What I didn't know is that Ray and Walt were partners and had been huh. partners for 40 years. Wow. Uh, wow. And, and, of course, Proposition 6 would have cost them their careers Yeah. and their life together. And it was horrible. And I found out about this years and years later. Um, I actually reconnected with Ray uh, when he was in his mid-'80s. Uh, I reached out to him. Uh, learned about his life, sent him a copy uh-huh. of my book and said, how tragic that I didn't know about you. You couldn't uh-huh. tell me about you because, boy, that sure would have been helpful for me.
1: Well, I wish he could be on the show with us today.
0: I know. But yeah. I'm so grateful that I had the chance to talk with him. We exchanged some some cards and notes, and I got a chance to say how much I appreciated him as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, it would have been great for him to be a role model, but... um he, he couldn't, couldn't be. He couldn't, he couldn't be. It would have put well, him my, in g- grave danger.
1: Yeah, my choir teacher in junior high school, uh, Mr. Patterson, was, uh, was a towering figure. And he was a sort of super masculine um, guy, African-American. And um, we did our first uh, uh, Martin Luther King Day concerts with mm. him. And he was tough and, and had no patience for anyone who didn't give 120%. Um, what I didn't know was that he and my earth science teacher, Mr. Heitner were a couple, mm.
2: um,
1: but it was rumored all the time that he was going to get engaged to this, uh, one of the women, te- female teachers. Um, it wasn't until I came out to him when I was in my freshman year of college, um, that, that he acknowledged that he was gay.
0: Uh,
1: um, Wow. and then pinned me to his refrigerator, which is a whole other story. <laughs> There were a lot of, there were unfortunately a lot of men who were gay men who grew up during that time who were very inappropriate with us younger men. Mm -hmm. Um, I did manage to get away from him, but I honestly, I never saw him again after that. Um, That's a, that's another complicated story um, among, among many. Um, But so for people who don't know, the Briggs Initiative actually did not win. It was a, it was a ballot initiative. Um, It was – so when Anita Bryant led her campaign, which was called Save Our Children, which probably sounds very familiar to what's going on now around trans issues, um, she successfully led the repeal of gay rights bills in Dade County in Florida and then subsequently across the U.S. um, And then it crested on the West Coast. Uh, At the same time, the Briggs Initiative was voted down. Um, Governor Ronald Reagan was against it. Um, Jimmy Carter – President Jimmy Carter came out against it. Um, there was also an effort to repeal the gay rights bill in Seattle, Washington, and a guy named Charlie Bryden, who will be featuring in our 70s season, uh, worked very hard having learned from all the failures across the country on how to stop them. Hmm. Um, so today, you know, today when, we, when people are fighting um, these new laws trying to uh, ban trans girls from sports and various other bills, there are roadmaps for us to look at. From the 1970s that were ultimately successful. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um,
0: right, but that's also another reason why this history and hearing from the people who made it is so important.
1: Yes, uh, we have lessons to learn from them, even though they don't walk the earth anymore. We have, I have their recorded voices and their stories. Yeah.
0: Well, I remember 78 was a huge year for me. Uh, freshman year in high school, it's when I discovered my love of working in law enforcement. It's mm-hmm. also when I discovered how homophobic law enforcement was. I remember walking in. I was, a, I was a cadet. I was 15 years old. And walking into the police department that I started at, I was so excited. But I heard, don't be queer, don't be a fag, all of that mm-hmm. language in the first hour. And I thought, okay, wow. uh, how am I going to navigate this? Because I was so excited about being part of this, and I saw a career for myself. But I also thought, if I get found out, i'm gonna I'm gonna be let go i'll I'll never have this career yeah, and, and I remember reading about the election of Harvey Milk uh-huh. uh, and that's when I really became aware of this emerging, you know by that time it was a huge gay neighborhood in the Castro and and this big community but you were you were in New York at the time, yeah.
1: I was. Um, I grew up in what I call the Iowa of New York City, um, uh, a neighborhood in far eastern Queens called Kew Gardens. Um, So I was I was a very, very unsophisticated kid. I left home in 76 to go to college in Poughkeepsie, New York, uh, where Vassar is located, Vassar College. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I was I was uh, uh, I was in New York the whole time. I really was not I was aware of things from. The newspaper and from magazines in fact Anita Bryant brought me out um or helped anyway because I remember seeing a cover of Newsweek at home uh I was home from college in 77 and her campaign had just begun and she was on the cover of Newsweek um uh, uh and I was just outraged I was, it was at lunch and uh, talking about it and my mother said to me what are you what are you so worked up about um, and I think that was a clue for her, and I, it's, I came out to her soon after, um, because she asked me. Um, it was a clue to her that 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 I had an interest in this that exceeded what a straight kid's interest would be. Interest would be. I remember saying to my mother when she said, well, you know, why, why are you so upset about this? I said, I said well, I have gay friends. Mm. Um, but I was outraged. And that's something we've seen over and over again, that when these backlashes occur, what the anti-gay activists don't recognize is that they then inspire uh, a new generation of young people to become activists, to fight back.
0: Right, right. And, and again, what's why it's so important that this history be, continue to be visible. Do you remember yeah. learning about the rainbow flag the first time? I don't. Do you? I don't at all. Uh, And in fact, when I learned about the history of it and Gilbert Baker, again, being from San Francisco and how it was handmade and how it it flew for the first time uh, and how it just kind of took off. It's like, where was I? How come I didn't know about this? How come that didn't resonate with me? Because of course I knew who I was at that time.
1: Uh, Well, you have the, the thing you have to remember is how rare it was for gay people to be featured in any way in the mainstream press. So in the olden days, um, I kept a clip file of all the articles in the New York Times and then when I lived in San Francisco for a while, all the articles in San Francisco papers about gay people. And I remember in 1987 when there was an article, a positive article about gay people on the style page in the New York Times, they only had one page, and it was, uh, the headline was Homosexuals find a quiet pride and there was a photograph of two gay guys one in a suit the other one in a sweater vest and a tie in a library in their home library and one of them sitting in a a leather high-backed wing chair and the other one standing above him and it was a gay couple Uh, one was a doctor the other one was a social worker and it was a stunning article as so stunning I clipped it I still have it and it was Dr. Emery Hetrick and Damian Martin the co-founders mm-hmm. of what came to be the Hetrick Martin Institute for the Protection of Lesbian Gay Youth. Wow. That was in 1987. It was so rare that there was anything in the press. Why would you have known? You know, unless you were uh, read the gay press, um, which I was terrified of reading most of the time, I didn't want anyone to see that I was buying one of those magazines or newspapers. Um, and it wasn't taught in school. So there was no way of knowing, you know, right. other what we saw, other than we saw and heard out on the street.
0: But those kinds of articles, like you said, really gave people a, a sense that they were not alone. I remember interviewing Cleve Jones uh, at his place in San Francisco and him talking about the Life magazine, I think it was 71, that had a story about, and pictures, pictures of other gay people and lots of gay people.
1: Yes, um, I just was uh, referencing that um, in my conversation yesterday with my producer, um, because there's a, they show a... a um, but maybe in the same, I'm not sure it was the same issue. This was one that showed um, Michael McConnell and Jack Baker. I believe it was the two gay men who tried to get married and one then lost his, his uh, he was up for a job at uh, uh, in Minnesota at a university library. And I apologize to anyone if I get some of this history wrong. I, I don't always remember it correctly. But there was a picture of them in Life magazine, which of course was a huge yeah. uh, best-selling magazine of the two guys shaving in a mirror side by side. Oh, wow. And I remember thinking, um, and I probably, I didn't see the magazine at the time. I saw it later, but I still was yet very young. I remember thinking, that's what I want. I want, I want that.
0: I want that life. I want that life.
1: And I got that life. So I feel very, very fortunate.
0: I remember one of the, you know, the stories that I would read periodically more frequently. Uh, maybe I'm imagining it more frequently than it happened was about, um, Politicians and famous people, who are thought to be straight, who are getting caught with cowboys and young men. Yes, you got a chance yes. to interview a Republican. Uh, tell us about that.
1: A Republican congressman named Robert uh, Bauman, Bob Bauman, uh, who was uh, was super conservative, devout Catholic, um, anti-gay, and uh, married with children and got caught in and out of limousines with callboys. Hmm. And I don't remember why I chose to interview him for my book, the original Making Gay History, which was called Making History, because I didn't He even said to me when I spoke with him recently, he's now in his mid eighties, he said, I don't know why you interviewed me. He said, because I was unlike everybody else in your book. Um, I, he wasn't someone who moved the ball forward with gay rights he was somebody who actually tried to impede gay rights and Mm -hmm. then it led to this huge scandal when he was, he was outed. Um, I'm going to guess I was really curious what his experience was, you know, how, how did he come to be so anti-gay? How did he hide in the way that he did? And I actually found him a very sympathetic person. Um, and, uh, Uh, We had such a nice conversation when I interviewed him recently. It will be available to our Patreon subscribers when the podcast episode goes up. Um, He had a terrible childhood. It was Dickensian. And it's so understandable how he came to be who he was. Um, And it's easy in hindsight now to, or it's easy now to feel empathy for this child who was so badly Abused by his by the life in which he grew up and by the church, and um, how it all came crashing down when he was a congressman, um, and how he found his way back, um, and now lives, <laughs> now lives in I think the gayest zip code in the country, Wilton, Wilton Manors, and uh, Lauderdale area. <laughs> um, and in some ways, it was like speaking with him again it was like too old. Um, two old guys who were in a war together, and I don't mean to suggest that we were in a war, but, uh, it wasn't close, but grew up in times that were very challenging for gay people. And, uh, both of us survived the AIDS crisis and here we were talking 30 years, more than 30 years after I first spoke with him. Wow. Um, it's one of the most, to me, one of the most interesting interviews I did, and we'll be sharing that episode this fall.
0: Well, we'll give you a quick teaser of that right now.
3: All of a sudden, these two or three cops just disappeared, what seemed to be out of nowhere. Uh, the first thing they asked me was how old I was. And I summoned up my deepest voice and said 17. But they knew better. And also it was an area that I didn't realize at the time, but there was a lot of young teenage boy hustlers in the area. And then they asked me who the other guy was, and I said, he's my uncle. Uh, and then they took us into the police station. You must have been frightened by that. I would say I was more angry. Mm-hmm. than fr- It was a mixture of the two. I mean, because I knew what was happening was an assault on, on our freedom and my freedom.
0: Well, Making Gay History is now a non-profit that depends on support. Uh, you've got a variety of grants, but really listeners and fans have an opportunity to support and keep the work going. Tell our listeners how they can subscribe to the podcast and support your work.
1: Well, if you go to our, go to our website at makinggayhistory.com, we've got a donate button. Um, once we launch the new season, we'll also have a Patreon account. Um, I really resisted the idea of asking listeners to support us, uh, but my producer persuaded me that people really do want to help and support. And we now have uh, well, we have many thousands of people who subscribe to the podcast and many hundreds of regular donors, one-time donors and um, um, and people who donate every month and uh, sustaining uh, donors. And I'm just so humbled by the people who support us from $5 to somebody wrote a check. They donated $5,000. I was, I, And then I found them and called them and said, what, what was that about? Um, and people feel... That it's important and I feel too that it's important for our history to be shared. And I have had the privilege of recording these interviews and now sharing these interviews with people all over the world. And I'm very grateful for whatever support our listeners provide so that we can keep doing what we do what we do.
0: Well, I hope that you do, and you can put my list on the people who appreciate your work. If you missed that link, making gay history.com, we'll put it on our website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. We've been talking with LGBT historian extraordinaire and author, Eric Marcus. Eric, thanks so much for the work and most of all for spending time with us tonight.
1: Thanks so much, Greg. It's a pleasure.
0: And we'll be right back. standouts brian is an out gay professional baseball player and of course as you just heard a great musician he's going to be the guest on our show coming up in december well that wraps up our hour i hope you've enjoyed celebrating lgbtq history month with us be sure to tune in next sunday night for outbeat radio's living proof with sheridan gold and dr diana grayer that's at 8 p.m and only here on krcb radio in the meantime have a great week and thanks for spending your sunday night with us Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at OutbeatNews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutbeatNews.com.
2: I'd love to change the world But I don't know Broken down
0: Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air chilled, non GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at RockyandRosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCBFM Roner Park and KRCGFM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.